If you would, uh, again, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And we will today be reading verses 1 through 8, at least the the first part of verse 8. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1 through verse 8. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints." Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, God, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this, your servant. We pray, God, that your gospel is clear. We pray that even as we look at the imperatives, the commands of this section of scripture, that we would understand it within the context of what you have done, your mighty deeds the salvation we have in Christ. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that uh, people don't often uh, realize about the Ten Commandments is that the prologue is a part of it. The prologue is that first part, which says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when God gave his law, it was within the context of the fact that he is God and that he had rescued his people out of bondage in Egypt. In much the same way, there is a context to the commands and exhortations of the Apostle Paul in the latter half of Ephesians. In Christ... We have been rescued from bondage to sin. We have been redeemed by His blood. We have been seated with Him in the heavenly places. By grace you have been saved and have been given an inheritance and have been called dearly beloved children of God. The context of God's law is always within the framework of God's mighty deeds. 
His awesome salvation. That He has poured out His love upon us. And so we are to respond with thanksgiving and obedience. In fact, what we are to do is to imitate God. We are to be conformed to His character. One of the lessons that parents learn, usually very quickly with children, is that children are great imitators. Children are great imitators. Whether the imitation is good or not so good, children will imitate. Our children are constantly picking up cultural cues and language cues of things that are around them, things that they watch, people they talk to, their parents. And they incorporate those things into their lives. It is often the case that the speech and attitude patterns of the parents will become that of their children. Not always, but often, this is the case. And this could be a good thing. This could be a very bad thing. Usually it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Imitation is what children do. As the children of God, we too are called to imitate. We're called to imitate Him. Both in what He does and says and what He does not do. God has revealed to us His character. He is holy. He is righteous. He is good. He is true. He is just. And so we are to pattern our lives after God. In fact, the patterns of our life is an indication to ourselves and to the world around us who our true Father is. Are you and I imitating God as our Father, or are we imitating the world, the flesh, and the devil? Are are we walking in the light, or are we walking in darkness? How we live indicates who we're imitating. You see, those who have been transformed by Christ are to be imitators of God, because we're God's children. And so we're to walk in love. Now the reason we walk in love is because God first loved us. Just as God has been tender-hearted, He's been compassionate, He has given forgiveness to us in Christ, we are to do the same toward others. We too are to be tender-hearted. We too are to be compassionate. We too are to forgive Offenses. Those whose souls have been purchased from the pit by the blood of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, those who have been saved by grace through faith, who have been adopted as His children and made partakers of the heavenly benefits, we are to love as God is loved. In short... We have been loved by God, therefore, as imitators of the Heavenly Father, we too are to walk in love. We are bound to do so as the regenerated and adopted children. We're to, as a habit of life, love. 
Our whole Christian life should be characterized by love. Love towards our neighbor. Love for one another. Because Christ loved us. He gave Himself for us. And so imitating God as beloved children involves loving others the way Christ has loved us. And how did Jesus love us? Well, He gave Himself up, Paul says, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. The example of Christ was a life marked by a by self-sacrifice. John 15:13, Jesus says, "Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends." Our Savior showed his love by giving himself to death on our behalf. The love of our Lord is manifest in the fact that He laid down His life for you and for me. This is the greatest love which can be given, the the love of self-sacrifice. And so walking in love, which imitates God, is to walk in a self-sacrificial love. In fact, the Apostle John spells this out in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 16, where he says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. God is very straightforward in that. Those who are in Christ ought to imitate God and love as Christ's love, laying down His life sacrificially. Now you just may say, well, but what does this actually mean? Does this mean that we should die for one another? That our lives should be a fragrant offering to the Lord? Maybe, but not quite in the same way. For one thing, Christ's death for us was a sacrificial offering for sin. He died in our place as a substitute. Jesus paid the penalty for sin that you and I could never pay. And in exchange, He imputed to us His righteousness. The Son of God was an offering on our behalf. He atoned for sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His body was given on the cross for us. His blood was shed as a ransom for many. Jesus is the object of our faith. He's the ground of our confidence. For by His blood we are redeemed and healed. So then how do we imitate Christ in this? How are we able... To love others in this way. Well, it ought to be obvious at this point to understand that you and I cannot be a substitute for one another like Christ is for us. You and I cannot die and forgive one another's sins. Only God can do that. But we can love one another self-sacrificially. We can love one another in a way which is pleasing before the Lord. 
Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He walked in love for us by embracing the cross. We can walk in love by dying to ourselves. Taking up our cross and following Jesus. In this we die to our own wills. We die to our own desires, our our own plans for our life. We are seeking to preserve our own lives in an attempt to gain more of the world. We want to gain Christ. It involves loving our neighbor as ourselves. It involves deeming the body of Christ as of more value than even my own life. This is the Christian life. A life of daily following the Lord in word and in deed. Seeing yourself as of less importance than others. It is often the case that I receive phone calls from people outside the church. In fact, I think uh, here at least it's been the case that more people call the church number from outside than actually from inside. Um, But it's often the case I receive phone calls from people, and usually people calling from outside are seeking some sort of financial assistance. One of the questions that I always ask people is, where do you go to church? Now the reason I ask this question is because if, if one of the members of this congregation was in dire need somewhere and you're calling other churches, I would want to know because we want to help you. Okay? And so I would figure this would be the case with most pastors. Most pastors, if they have a sheep somewhere which is hurting and wounded, they'd want to know and try to help. Well, on, on one such occasion, I, I received a call, and, and I always ask, this, or usually do at least, ask the question about you know, where they go to church. And the response I received was that this person said something to the effect of, well, I might start going to church once my primary need has been taken care of. Once my problem, my financial problems are solved, well, then maybe I'll consider attending church. Of course, I think you may agree to say when I say this, the person this person did not understand what their primary need actually is. But people do this all the time, don't they? I'll follow the Lord after I get what I want out of this life. Then maybe I'll consider following the Lord, but what's really important is what I want, my needs, my desires. How I want to live my life. What I can accumulate to myself. This is not only though among unbelievers. It's also among believers too. Sometimes believers approach the Christian life of, well, sort of, this is what I do maybe on Sundays. But really the rest of the time is about me and my needs. And really the church... Uh, in in the Christian life is really to fulfill all my own felt needs. That's how some people who who are members in churches and they they approach the Christian life this way. It's very very self-centered. It's very much about what my needs might be. But this is 
This is not the Christian life. The the Christian life ought not to be a life of self-focus. It's not a life of fixing ourselves so that we can walk in love with the body. Too often we try to make Christianity into some sort of a self-help program, self-focused religion. Self-focus and self-help is the opposite of the Christian faith because it's the opposite of sacrifice. Christian life is not a life of grasping for my best life now. It's not a life of getting everything I want as if Jesus were some sort of magic genie in a bottle. Rub it and say the right prayers. Maybe, maybe Jesus will give me what I want. We do that sometimes, don't we? The Christian life is a life of death. It's a life of dying to my own desires. It's a life of sacrifice for the need of the body. For loving, the, loving our neighbor. It's being poured out as a drink offering, as it were, for the benefit of the body of Christ. And sometimes that self-death involves literal martyrdom, as some of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan have experienced uh, the last month or so. And sometimes it's simply having to do and say hard things. I think one of the hardest things we may do as a Christian is to confront another believer in their sin. This is, of course, sadly because we don't always uh, respond in humility, right? When we're confronted, we don't, we don't say, Ah, yes, I'm so glad you're telling me about this sin. I'm really... You know, this, is, I'm, this is a great conversation we're having, right? That doesn't usually go that way. I'm not, I'm, by the way, I'm not judging you. I'm judging myself. No! Right? We don't always act in humility. This is why it's hard for us then to confront other people in their sin. Because it's risky. It's risky to lovingly confront someone with their sin. It's easier to hold our peace, keep our mouths shut. It's harder sometimes to speak. One way we serve one another in love is by confronting one another in love. Seeking to reclaim a brother and sister. To, to restore them to the body. To restore them in their relationship to Christ. This is what Matthew 18 is all about. But, but doing that involves dying to ourselves. Because there are about 10,000 other things I would rather do than have a conversation like that with somebody. Maybe that's true for you too. Those are hard conversations to have. Dying to self means I'm going to have to do something that I don't want to do. Being imitators of Christ then involves living and walking like Christ did. Loving and embracing others. Weeping with those who weep. When you weep with someone who weeps, by the way, that takes time, right? I mean, weeping with others who weep, when they're, when they're hurting, and you have, to, you have to set aside something in your life so you could, you could sit beside them and cry with them. You might think, you know, I've got about, you know, a hundred other things to do today. Well... Dying to self means you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna sit there and you're going to cry with this person. 
rejoicing with those who rejoice. Taking time with and for one another, this, these things displace the things that I have, the plans I have for myself. Dying to myself means I'm willing for those things to be displaced because I love the brothers and sisters. Loving others enough to risk relationships when we have to confront wickedness. Loving someone enough to forgive them as Christ has forgiven us. Maybe someone sins against you. And we talked about we were we talked about this uh, last week or two weeks ago, right? Sometimes we don't we're not ready to forget, right? but we need to forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Now, of course, listen. These are easier things to say, right? It's very sim- it's very easy for me to say these things. I, I just remind you again that, that I preach sermons for me sometimes. You just get to listen in. These are hard things to do. The Christian walking in love, though, is willing to set aside his or her own desires and serve others in time, talent, or treasure. And sometimes all of those things. And so as imitators of Christ, we first we walk in love. And then Paul points out that we're not to walk in sin. We're to walk in love, but not in sin. So here, Paul gives us a, a list of sins to avoid. Now, already Paul had exhorted the church to put off sin. He talked about it like taking off a filthy garment, as it were. To, to put away sin against our neighbor. But here, though, he dwells primarily on those sins which are against ourselves and which violate the commandments of God. These are sins which ought not to even be named among God's people. And the list begins with sexual immorality. This is any kind of illicit sexual activity, whether it be pornographic or illicit affairs. It's it's pretty broad. This is a catch-all phrase which involves all sorts of different kinds of sexual sin, along with all kinds of impurity and covetousness. Coveting is wanting that which does not belong to you. And these, Paul says, shouldn't even be named among you. It's one thing for the Christian to fall into sin. All of us violate aspects of God's commands, uh, whether it be with our tongue or not honoring the Lord as we ought. But sexual sin should not even be considered a possible option. The Christian should not even be considered possibly involved in something like that. Which is also to say that our reputations matter. We ought to try and avoid even the appearance of impropriety. Even the world should not name sexual immoral actions and Christians in the same sentence. They shouldn't even consider that the Christian would do something like that. Sadly, this is often not the case. Far too many scandals have hit the church of Jesus Christ particularly among ministers and church leaders. 
who have been who have sinned and fallen in these kinds of sins. But this should not be. This is the this is Paul's point. Now, if sexual immorality is one of the most discussed uh, sins in Scripture, sins of the tongue is up there as well. How we use our words, our, our word choices, our speech patterns matter. Paul says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. It's strange in light of scriptural evidence to the contrary, how many Christians think that crude speech and crude jokes are all right. Paul here is speaking against the use of obscenity, cursing, or just plain dirty talk, along with foolish talk. This is empty, senseless chatter, crude joking, coarse jesting. The Christian speech pattern should not be marked by the use of obscene language. The humor that we use ought not to be the humor of fools. Now, being witty is okay. It's okay, it's good to be, and right to be witty. We should enjoy good humor. We should laugh together. But we should not use our tongues for telling lurid jokes and making sexual innuendo. This is the speech of fools. We're not to be frivolous and senseless in our speech. Foolish speech sells itself as witty, but it's not. It's not actually witty. It's crude. It's corrosive. It's degrading. This foolish talk relates to the next scripture which Paul uses, crude joking. This describes the speech of someone who turns a discourse into a joke by twisting words and their meanings in order, in order to deceive. Now, you've, you've all had conversations with people who do this very thing, haven't you? Where you say something and they just they turn it into something else. You're like, that's not what I'm saying, but they're laughing. Maybe you've done the same yourself. The Christian is not to be one who, who takes conversations and twists them into crude and filthy and foolish affairs. What is being talked about here is related to what was said before concerning sexual immorality. Much of the foolish talk and the crude humor that can be found is usually of a sexual nature, isn't it? These things are misplaced among believers. Followers of Jesus should not cheerfully express themselves in this way. Now, someone might say, but, but what's hard? A little fun, right? Just a little fun, a little, little humor. Well, this type of talk is not fun. Said it's corrosive. It's corrosive to the body, the body of Christ. Now, someone might say, well, is the Christian then just a prude? Are we just prudes? Just sort of sort of Victorian era prudes, which by the way, the Victorian era wasn't as prudish as you led on to believe. But listen, we're not humorless or disagreeable people. This is not, that would be to miss the point. But this kind of humor, which is no humor at all, is something that we're to die to. We're to die to that kind of talk. 
The follower of Jesus should not speak shamefully of men and women. We should not twist people's words so they turn into an innuendo. Instead, the Christian is to express thanksgiving. We should express thanksgiving for the great salvation which is ours. For the abundant spiritual blessings which are ours in Christ. For the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the unity of the saints. We are to give much thanks. But we have much to give thanks for. Crude speech is out of place for those who are members of the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality, impurity, crude joking, jesting. These are, these are the opposite characteristics of those who are imitators of God in Christ. These things have no place in the Christian life because they are contrary to the character of God. The Christian is one who has been transformed as a new creature. The Christian has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. But this is not the case for those who are outside of Christ. And so it's here in verse 5 which Paul returns to the things that he said in verse 3 in order to reinforce his point. Where he says this, For you may be sure of this, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The practitioners of these sins, those who live their lives on an ongoing basis, practicing sexual immorality, practicing impurity, those who are practicing covetousness, which Paul points out is idolatry, have no inheritance in the kingdom. Now, Notice and understand this. He is not speaking about people who are repentant of sin. He's not saying, oh, well, you, you did the sin that nobody can forgive. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who, this is the practice of their life, and they're unrepentant. He's talking about the recalcitrant sinner who seems to believe that his sin is consistent with walking in the light. Far from walking in the light, those whose life is marked by this pattern of sin are not inheritors of the kingdom. They are in fact walking in darkness. Regardless of what they may claim, their life and their lack of repentance gives evidence of a heart which remains stone cold and unchanged. These are people without hope. These are people without eternal life. You see, there are people who may claim to be in the kingdom. They claim Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but they have failed to take up their cross and follow Him. They're not following Him. They continue on with the old dead man of sin, and thus show themselves not to be new creatures in Christ. You see, Paul is warning the church against sin. The corrosiveness of sin. 
And there are certain sins which the Bible over and over and over again singles out, which as being particularly offensive to God. And the two which stand out regularly are sexual sins and idolatry. Those regularly are the things that are brought out as being offensive to God. Sexual sin is a sin against yourself, your spouse, and whoever else you are participating in this with. It is a type of uncleanness which is particularly odious to God. It is a species of coveting which here is linked to idolatry, which is putting something in the place of God. You're worshiping the wrong thing. It is a worship of or affection for something else when that worship and affection belongs to God alone. Idolatry is a sin that is most heinous in the sight of God. It is denounced as the greatest of all sins in His sight because it strips Him of His glory and honor which is due to Him alone. When it comes to the sin of coveting and idolatry, idolatry is the controlling principle. A person who dedicates their life to desiring something, serving something, coveting something other than the one true God has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Beloved, this is how serious sin is. The covetous man, the idolater, has no place in Christ's kingdom. And since this is the case, this begs the question, why would a Christian want to participate in these kinds of sins? The answer, of course, is we shouldn't. Then why are there those who name the name of Christ but do this very thing? Why is that? A number of years ago, um, probably four or five years ago, there was a well-known evangelical pastor who wondered... Uh, He had written a a blog post. He wondered why some Christians would watch a particular cable television show which was known to feature copious amounts of violence, nudity, and sexual promiscuity. Now, I'm not going to name the show, but some of you probably know exactly the show I'm speaking about. Now, the interesting thing was not the article itself but the reaction against the article among evangelical Christians. Many vehemently defended the show and the freedom of the Christian to watch such a thing. Their main arguments were that to oppose, oppose, for Christians to oppose watching this show is simply just legalism and judgmental. You're being judgmental and legal here. But Pharisees... Among many evangelical Christians, nudity and sexual promiscuity apparently is not a big deal. But this attitude begs the question, what kingdom are you a member of anyway? Now, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying that watching a show or not has anything to do with your kingdom status. Although I would argue that it may speak to their maturity as believers. But as a pastor, I am concerned with those who purposefully and willfully continue to participate in sin. We must ask ourselves, 
how the things we take in help us focus on whatever is true and whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. How does it help us focus on those things? The Christian is to set his or her mind on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. Because we have been blessed in the heavenly places in Christ. We have a new identity. Our membership is in a heavenly kingdom. Those who would advocate for lowering the bar of sin and allowing sin to abound are deceiving you. They are giving empty words. Those who would encourage ethical permissiveness, they're lying to you. And often these lies are cloaked in the words of guilt. Don't be a legalist. Don't be a Pharisee, they'll say. We're under grace, not the law. These are the typical arguments used. Now, understand, there is a lawful use of the law. God does have standards. We, didn't, we don't just cut out the Ten Commandments from the Bible or any, any place where God commands something from us. Well, we're under grace, so God has nothing to say about how we live our life now because we're just saved by grace, right? We can do whatever we want. Don't be deceived by the empty words of those who would encourage you to love the things of the world and join them in sin. Don't listen to those who tell you, well, you're not hurting anyone. It's just a little fun. Paul warns his readers not to be misled into thinking that sin is all right. Because those who advocate such things will eventually come under the wrath of God. Those who deceive others into sin have failed to reckon with God. And they may well become like the idol which they have fashioned, having eyes which cannot see and ears which cannot hear. The playwright Oscar Wilde once said this, the way to resist temptation is to yield to it. This is the prevailing view of the world, isn't it? And this is terrible advice. Terrible! And it illustrates the deceitfulness of sin and the empty words which are used to defend it. Do not become partners with this. Do not join yourself to sin. For you are an inheritor of the kingdom of God. You are in the light. So don't walk in darkness. Your inheritance is not found in the things of this present darkness. You are a son of the kingdom of Christ. Your share is found there. Paul asks in 2 Corinthians 6.14, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Christians are those who have been rescued from darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. We once were under the domain of darkness, but now we are in the light of Christ. And those who are in the light walk in the light, which is to say, 
They're imitators of God. So what are you imitating? Are you imitating the Lord? Are you walking in His ways? Is His Word a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? Or are you imitating the world? Live consistent with those that, that which God has commanded. And we will see, um, in next week, we'll see that light, as we walk in the light, light exposes that which is hid in darkness. The, the truth unmasks the lies and deceits of sin. The follower of Jesus is called to a life of holiness, living in the light and not in the darkness. For our minds have been enlightened in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. These past three weeks have been difficult words. Honestly, it's been difficult to preach. These are the sort of things that you're like, you know, I'd I'd like to just sort of move past quickly. And we still have another week I get to hammer on this, but I want you to know it. I I understand these are hard things to listen to. I started out three weeks ago by saying that the Christian life is not for whims. It's a life of death. But it's also a life of new life. As we consider the hard words of Scripture, we again, we must keep this within the larger context. That needs to be in mind. This is the reason I, I keep beating that drum, because I don't want you to think... You know, like, do this, do this, do this. No, no, it's within a larger context. But there are things, there's hard things that the Apostle Paul, that through the, through the Holy Spirit, wants us to know and understand. There's warnings which we need to heed. We are to, to imitate God because He is our God. He is our Father. We are adopted children through the blood of Jesus Christ. And because this is the case, because we are transformed children of God, our hearts ought to be, our heart's desire ought to be to please Him. That's a lawful use of the law. We follow His commandments because He is our delight. We delight in our Heavenly Father, and thus we delight in His law. Therefore, we ought to desire to avoid the sins which Paul lists out because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And the problem is, though, that we still live in our flesh and we have a daily battle with sin. We ought to have a daily battle with sin. The important thing to keep in mind, though, is that Jesus has paid for our sins, hasn't he? And so in light of that reality, we can, empowered by the Spirit, we are enabled to imitate God. It's like what we talked about uh, earlier, the Ten Commandments. God has already rescued you from slavery. We have already been made sons and heirs. And so now when we have His law, we can use it to not only show us how we fall short of it, not only to sort of hem us in, 
but also to see the things which we can delight in that delight the Lord. And the Christian ought to live in a way which pleases God, because He's our Father. This is, this is the heart's desire of the Christian. And we can rest knowing that God helps us do this very thing, right? Because He's given to us His Holy Spirit. And so the question is, again, who are you imitating? Are you imitating the world? Or are you imitating God in obedience to His Word? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the hard truths, for the warnings. But we thank you also that you rescued us and made us to be your children. And we thank you that Jesus has called those who are weary and heavy laden to find rest in him. And so we thank you, God, that you've called us to rest. We thank you, God, that though we are sinners, you have forgiven us, that you have given us new hearts. But I do pray, God, for those who may be among us who don't have a new heart. We pray, God, that you would cause us all to repent of our sin, trust in Jesus Christ. And Father, if there are areas of sin in our lives which remain, and they do, Help us to put those to death. Sanctify us by your Spirit, we pray. Father, we pray that as we hear the hard words of Scripture, we see your law, that we may, like the psalmist, delight in your word. And that we may meditate it day and night. And that we may love you and those around us as you have loved us. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.